Our sermon this morning comes from Isaiah chapter 9. And we're going to start at verse 8 uh, and go through 10:19. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to take them out and turn to Isaiah chapter 9. And again, we're going to start this morning at verse 8. I'm not going to read all of this, uh, but what I do want to read is 9, 8 through 10, 4. Uh, and then read starting at uh, verse 16 of chapter 10. So let me remind you, this is God's good and kind and gracious word to you this morning. The Lord has sent a word against Jacob, and it will fall on Israel. And all the people will know, Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria, who say in pride and in arrogance of heart, The bricks have fallen, but we will build with dressed stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we will put cedars in their place. But the Lord raises the adversaries of resin against him and stirs up his enemies. The Syrians on the east and the Philistines on the west devour Israel with an open mouth. For all this his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. The people did not turn to him who struck them, nor inquire of the Lord of hosts. So the Lord cut off from Israel head and tail, palm branch and reed in one day. The elder and the honored man is the head, and the prophet who teaches lies in the tale. For those who guide this people have been leading them astray, and those who are guided by them are swallowed up. Therefore the Lord does not rejoice over their young men, and has no compassion on their fatherless and widows. For everyone is godless and an evildoer, and every mouth speaks folly. For all this his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. For wickedness burns like a fire, it consumes briars and thorns, it kindles the thickets of the forest, and they roll upward in a column of smoke. Though the wrath of the Lord of hosts, through the, laugh, the, the wrath of the Lord of hosts, the land is scorched, and the people are like fuel for the fire. No one spares another. They slice meat on the right, but are still hungry. And they devour on the left, but are not satisfied. Each devours the flesh of his own arm. Manasseh devours Ephraim, and Ephraim devours Manasseh. For all this, the anger has not turned away. His anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees, and the writers who keep writing oppression, to turn aside the needy from justice and to rob the poor of my people their right, that widows may be their spoil, that they may make the fatherless their prey. What will you do on the day of punishment and the ruin that will come from afar? To whom will you flee for help? And where will you leave your wealth? Nothing remains but to crouch among the prisoners or fall among the slain. For all, his, for all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. Let me read 10.5 as well. Ah, Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff in their hands is my fury. Against a godless nation I send him, against the people of my wrath I command him to take spoil and seize and plunder and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. Now turn 
Look at verse 16. Therefore the Lord God of hosts will send wasting sickness among his stout warriors, and under his glory a burning will be kindled like the burning of fire. The light of Israel will become a fire and his holy one a flame, and it will burn and devour his thorns and briars in one day. The glory of his forest and of his fruitful land the Lord will destroy, both soul and body. And it will be as when a sick man wastes away. The remnant of the trees of his forest will be so few that a toddler can write them down. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray and ask for the Lord to help help us understand this word. Pray with me, please. Father, again, as we turn in this passage and see so much judgment and destruction and death, we recognize that uh, this is the, the last the last thing that you do after you have offered grace for so long. I pray that we would see this, that we would not turn away from your grace, but would receive it. I pray that you would give us hearts that can receive it and eyes that can see your great love. Help us to see these things and especially see Christ from this passage. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Well, in chapters 6 through 12 of Isaiah, uh, or these chapters can be called, I think, the book of Isaiah. Chapters 1 through 5 set up the problem. God's people have rebelled against him. Well, chapters 6 through 12 begin to answer that problem. What is God going to do? He's going to send Emmanuel, or God with us. What God's people really need is God's presence with them. Now, generally speaking, God with us is considered good news. But as we will see in this passage, Emmanuel isn't always good news. Since God's people are sinful and since God is holy, then God with them would mean that God's people would be destroyed. I want you to think of it this way. Emmanuel is, like, Emmanuel is like a coin with two sides. On one side it says, grace and mercy. But when you flip the coin over on the other side, it says, holy wrath. Both of these sides are part of Emmanuel. And again, we're going to see this in our passage today. In these verses, Yahweh turns his attention now away from Judah, the southern tribes, to Samaria in the northern kingdom. For the most part, Isaiah has been speaking against that southern tribe, or their southern kingdom. But the question remains, what about the northern kingdom of Israel? After all, aren't they still Israel? Didn't they receive the same promises and blessings that Judah had received? And the answer is yes. God is not done with the northern kingdom. He's going to deal with them And in doing so, we're going to see the way that sin and sinfulness destroy God's people, even in the church, and ultimately what God is going to do about that. And we're going to see this in three ways. First, we're going to see Israel's sin in uh, chapter 9, verses 8 through 10, 4. Then we're going to see Assyria's sin. We have to deal with Assyria. And that's in 10, 5 through 19. And then sprinkled throughout this passage, we're going to deal with Emmanuel's judgment over that sin. 
So let's begin by looking at Israel's sin in 9.8 through 10.4. Isaiah structures his book as he was inspired by the Holy Spirit around cycles of judgment and grace. Isaiah gives a word of judgment for a chapter or two, and then he's going to cycle back around to pronouncing a word of mercy and grace. Last week, we ended on that word of mercy. So now we would expect to see that cycle of judgment come back around. This time in that cycle of judgment, Yahweh focuses his attention on that northern kingdom of Israel. You can look at chapter 9, verses 8 and 10, and you can see there four different words that are used to define this kingdom, or four different names for this kingdom. They are Jacob, and Israel, and Ephraim, and Samaria. Again, all the same nation, just different names that are applied to them at different times in the scriptures, here all in one or two verses. Um, now, around 200 years before Isaiah lived, the 12 tribes of Israel split into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom, 10 tribes of the northern kingdom, and then two tribes in the southern kingdom, the northern kingdom Israel, southern kingdom Judah. The northern kingdom had its capital in Samaria. Now, while this northern kingdom retained some of the religious practice as instructed by Yahweh in his word, they began a slow descent into practicing the idolatry of the nations around them. The southern kingdom's descent into idolatry, or the southern kingdom descended into idolatry as well, but it was slower than the northern kingdoms for various reasons. Now, in this section, you're going to notice uh, one line repeated four times, and this is the line. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. These are the four section, uh, sections of judgment for us to observe. And you see the first one there in verses 10 through 12. Here's what we learn there. We learn that, that the people of Israel are trusting in their own resources. They have been attacked and sacked by invading armies, but then they proudly proclaim, we will, will rebuild it. Forgetting, of course, that God is sovereign over those armies. And they say, we're going to rebuild it even better than it was before without referencing or thinking about Yahweh and what he had done. The second you see in verses 13 through 17. And here we learn that everyone in Israel is practicing uh, evil. No one is worshiping Yahweh and they are using their mouths to utter terrible things. Uh, there in verse 17, we're told that the Lord doesn't rejoice over the young men and has no compassion over their fatherless and their widows. Even the widows and the orphans, uh, those that are generally thought of in most cultures as being the most meek and oppressed, are also uh, spreading evil and speaking evil with their mouths. And so everyone from the greatest to the least is evil in Israel. Third, in verses 18 through 21, we find out that these people are full of contention. They are fighting with each other, and they are foolishly provoking other nations. And then the fourth thing we see in verses 10, or in chapter 10, 1 through 4, after all of this, 
They take advantage and they oppress the poor and helpless of society. Uh, just and, and the reality is, is just because the orphans and wind widows are also wicked doesn't mean that they are open for oppression. But that's what happens in Israel. And I want you to understand something about this. As we talk about the evil of this northern kingdom of Israel, I want you to understand that this descent farther, far, uh, farther and farther down into sin, it didn't happen overnight. It happened bit by bit, drip by drip, until the bucket was filled. When they split from Judah, in a very short amount of time, you know they, they got tired of crossing the border and traveling to Jerusalem to make sacrifices, sacrifices and worship the way that Yahweh had commanded them. So they built their own temple. And then they said, you know, I don't want to travel all the way to Samaria to worship. Uh, let's build other temples to worship in, other places to worship all over the region of the northern kingdom. And then eventually they began to worship other gods in those other places of worship. Little drips away from God until the bucket was too heavy to carry. In my college apartment, one day I came in from class, I swung the door open, and I saw on the wall where my couch was sitting that the entire wall was covered in green mold and mildew. And I know for certain that that wall was not covered in that whenever I left that morning. I immediately called the apartment, apartment manager over to see what had happened. And eventually, he discovered that the air conditioner unit in the apartment above us had been overflowing its drip pan for a very long time. All that water was sprinkling down the back of the walls and over time eventually seeped underneath the floorboards, drip by drip, until eventually it manifested itself in thousands of dollars of repairs to the walls to the floors, and even in the internal structure of the building, drip by drip. The warning for us is that our sin can blind us to itself until our souls are filled with mold and mildew, and we don't even know it until it's too late and the damage is already done. It's a warning to us. So first we see Israel's sin. And then we see a serious sin in five uh, or in ten five through nineteen. Now, because Israel had done these things, Yahweh promised to bring destruction on them through the Assyrian army. The reality is that as bad as the Israelites were, the Assyrians were far worse. Indeed, they prided themselves on their terror and depravity. And the natural question arises, why would Yahweh use a much more sinful nation to judge a less sinful nation? And it seems from a human perspective to be unfair. But in reality, it's only unfair if we don't believe in God's sovereignty and God's holiness. Yahweh, in his righteous judgment, can use even unrighteous instruments to accomplish his purposes. I thought about it like this today. You know, a carpenter can use a, a bent hammer, if he wants to, or a wrench to drive in a nail, 
it'll still get the job done. Who are we to question him if he does that, if he wants to do that? But, but to answer the question, Yahweh actually gives us a better answer in this passage. Here's what's really going on in Assyria. You can see it in verse 7. Uh, Yahweh kind of peels back the curtain and, and allows us to see something that we don't get to see very often. We don't get to see inside into the intentions of the heart of men. But God does, and he peels back the layers for us, and he allows us to see into the intentions of the hearts of the people of Assyria. And so what's happening in Assyria, as God is using them to wipe away all these other nations, as they are growing in power, what's happening to their hearts? Well, in 7 through 11, 10, 7 through 11, what we're told is, they grow, uh, as they grow in power and prestige and they expand their borders, they don't stop and think about why this is happening. And ultimately, they begin to believe that they are smart, that they are strong, and that they're better than everyone else, and that's why they are able to conquer the way that they are. But their success should have humbled them, but it didn't. Their success made them harden their hearts even more. Now, if you want to compare the Assyrians to the Israelites, you can see kind of the difference between their sin. Israel's sin was a drip by drift, drip, drip by drip, drift away from Yahweh, but Assyria's sin is an outright, in-your-face rebellion against Yahweh. They have placed themselves in the position of the sovereign God on Yahweh's throne, and in their minds, they're able to do what they do by the strength of their own hands. You see that in verse 13. They're proud and they brag about their own strength. And then they say, you know, we've simply stumbled on nations that are ripe for the plundering, and he compares it to, they compare it to like stumbling upon eggs in the forest the, you know, that have been abandoned and it's a nice little breakfast for you right there. It's an easy breakfast. But all of this bragging is offensive to Yahweh. Yahweh compares it to uh, like an axe, saying that he's stronger than the lumberjack who, who chops with him. Or a saw who boasts over the carpenter who's wielding him. Or a scepter, you know, in the, in the hand of a king that claims strength and power over the king that holds it. You see that in verse 15. In essence, they are proud and arrogant. Their wickedness flows from the heart that is proud and arrogant. You see that in verse 12. He will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look of his eyes. Here's what we need to understand, though. Israel's sin and Assyria's sin are exactly the same. Why did Yahweh punish Israel? Well, they did those four things that we talked about earlier, but it all flowed from the same kind of heart that Assyria had. And you see it again in verse 9 of chapter 9. And all the people will know, Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria, who say in pride and in arrogance of heart, the bricks have fallen, 
but we will build with dressed stones. And it goes on from there. Israel and Assyria could not be more different in terms of their history, their religious practice, their power, and their prestige. And yet, both of them are going to be punished because they are arrogant and proud. Arrogance and pride are dangerous sins. And those two sins are found, according to this passage, in both those that are wanting to identify with Yahweh, Israel, and those that don't in Assyria. It's found in good church people and bad non-church people. Pride and arrogance for both those in the church and those outside of the church gets the judgment of God. And then we see here Emmanuel's judgment. And his judgment is sprinkled all throughout this passage, of course. But I want to first look at the form that the judgment that Yahweh uses against Israel takes. And look there at Isaiah 9, 11. You see that because Israel doesn't turn back to Yahweh after they are attacked the first time, that he actually will increase their enemies. And then in verses 13 and 14, God removes good leaders from them and he gives them bad leaders. And that leads to this trickling down of unrighteousness. So much so that even children and widows practice evil. Then in uh, verses 20 and 21, Yahweh tells them that he's going to give them an abundance of resources, but they will never be satisfied with them. And I think this is really important. This section always strikes me. It's really important for us as Americans to take note of this. It is a sign of Yahweh's judgment that when you have everything you could possibly ever need or want and you're still not content with it and you always want more, again, that that is a sign of Yahweh's judgment. They are dissatisfied and not able to be satisfied they slice meat on the right. They have lots of meat on the right, but they're still hungry. They eat as much as they want. They're still hungry. They devour on the left, but are not satisfied, ultimately, until they can't get enough. And so they, graphically, they eat their own arms. It's a sign of Yahweh's judgment when you have everything you could possibly ever need or want that you aren't content with, content with it and you're dissatisfied. You want more and more and more. And ultimately... That dissatisfaction with stuff will lead to contention between brothers. So Manasseh and Ephraim, brothers, were fighting with each other. And then the last thing in, in chapter 10, verses 1 and 2, we see that they will then go, when they're not satisfied just with what they have, they go and pray on the weak in order to get more and more and more. And for that, what God says is, there's nothing left to do but to crouch among the prisoners, to hide among the dead, God says, because you prey on the weak, I will make you weak. All of these things are part of Yahweh's judgment. And it's important to take note of the reality that one of God's worst forms of judgment is allowing you to descend farther and further down into sin. Just like Paul says in Romans 1, 18-32, sin is part of God's judgment. God judges sin but sin is also part of God's judgment. 
Secondly, though, in, in this section, I want you to look at Yahweh's judgment against the Assyrians. And in the section I read here out of chapter 10, uh, in a twist of delicious irony, the arrogant Assyrians will ultimately be defeated by an Israelite warrior. You see that in verse 17. The light of Israel will become a fire, and his holy one a flame. And, and the promise here is that, again, there's going to be uh, a warrior that comes from Israel. The Assyrians had spent a great deal of time up to this point. Please go back and read this and read about the ways in which they were boastful about their strength and they were putting down the weak Israelites. But as it turns out, Israel has an unexpected strength. A warrior comes from Israel and is compared to an all-consuming fire, a fire that is so destructive that it only takes one day to do all the work of dismantling the Assyrian Empire. And it's a fire that is so far-reaching that it can destroy both the body and the soul. God's judgment on the Assyrians is speedy and extensive, and nothing is going to stop his warrior from destroying them. The Assyrians were very proud of their gardens, they had these massive gardens with massive cities. They put a lot of effort into building these beautiful gardens. But here, throughout this passage, we're told that the warrior will burn the gardens down. So much so, that at the end of all of the destruction, you could put a toddler, who maybe can count to one or to two, that he can count the number of trees and gardens and all the beautiful stuff that's left. This is wonderful trash talk. That's what God is going to do to the Assyrians through his warrior. Here we need to understand the difference between Yahweh's judgment between the Israelites and the Assyrians. When Yahweh comes against Israel, the judgment is slower. He's using steps in judgment as a means to call his people back to faith in himself. It's akin to those in the church who are living in rebellion to God maybe living in some kind of secret sin, but who nevertheless come to church week after week and have the benefit of hearing the good news proclaimed. God is warning that person, gently calling them, convicting them of their sin. And we don't know, assuming that they continue to come to church and hear, how they are going to ultimately respond. But at least they're still in church and they have the opportunity to turn now, if you look at the Assyrians, what do you see? The judgment is swift, it's merciless, and it's all-consuming. There is no hope for the Assyrians, no hope of returning, because they were never with the Lord to begin with. Now, in all of these things, you need to ask, are you under the condemnation of the Lord this morning? Even if you're in church, even if you claim to be a Christian, what about those judgments that I just described in Israel? Are you dissatisfied with so much and not content and can't get enough? It may be that you're under the judgment of God. Are you privy to all the benefits of church life, but do you still live in rebellion to God? Have you, like the Israelites, or even like the Assyrians, arrogantly prided yourself on your ability and your strength? 
Or have you fled to the Lord of hosts for sanctuary? Let me conclude in this way. There's a lot of correspondence between uh, Isaiah and many of the books of the New Testament. John and Paul's writings. Um, or, yeah, John's writings and Paul's writings and really all throughout. But in Revelation, the Apostle John is given a vision of Jesus. And at first, it's a vision like Isaiah saw in Isaiah 6. And much of what Isaiah saw is repeated by John in Revelation chapter 4. But as the book of Revelation continues, John is given greater and greater revelations of Jesus. Not merely as a king on the throne, that's enough, but he's given more. Because Jesus is also the lamb that was slain. And as the book progresses, Jesus is revealed to be the lamb and the king. But then in Revelation 19, John sees this. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. From his mouth comes a short, sharp sword. He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Jesus came as the Lamb, once to save us through his sacrifice. But he's coming again as the warrior and the righteous judge to finish the job. If you don't take him as the lamb today, you will have to take him as the judge one day. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for giving us this word. As hard as it is, it is so important for us to hear. I pray that you would help me to evaluate my own heart and help those that listen this morning or whenever they listen to evaluate their own hearts as well. I pray that we would not be like the Israelites or the Assyrians who hardened our hearts against you, but that we would come to you and flee to you, that we would stay with you. Lord, that can only happen if you do the miraculous for us and you give us the desire to remain with you. Help us to do this by your grace and mercy, we pray it in Christ's name.